Morning, Emmanuel. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Philippians? Uh, Philippians, and we're going to read from Philippians chapter 1 and uh, chapter 4. And as you're turning to Philippians 1 and chapter 4, I'll remind you about the Christmas missions offering. I'm not going to make an announcement about that this morning, though I will, I think, allude to it later in the sermon. But I want to encourage you uh, to give generously and sacrificially so that we can give a special gift that would support uh, our missionaries and also the work of the Emmanuel Network and also the work of the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist uh, Convention. But let me uh, read to you two passages from the book of Philippians. We're thinking about uh, Christmas and missions and missions offering over the course of this uh, Christmas season. And this morning we're thinking specifically about the partnership that ought to be there between a faithful congregation and those who are sent out to uh, serve the gospel and to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So let me read to you two passages and I hope you will maybe make a mental mark or note of the word partnership in both of these passages. So first, Philippians chapter one, verse three. The apostle Paul under the inspiration and authority of the Holy Spirit, says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And if you'll turn to the end of the book, the Apostle Paul uh, gets around to one of the main reasons he's written this letter, which is to thank them uh, for sending him uh, a companion to visit him in prison, and just frankly, finances to sustain him in his life uh, as an imprisoned apostle for Jesus Christ. He writes in chapter 4, verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Whatever is, uh, sorry, concern for me, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. 
And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving, receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent me, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus." To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I love this people, and we love you. And we want to hear your voice this morning in ways that help us to walk in ways that please you and be satisfied with you and know you and sustain us so that we can be in partnership with each other and so that we can be in partnership with those we've sent out from here. Lord, we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. The question I want to begin by asking this morning is, how do you sustain long-term partnerships? How do you sustain long-term partnerships? That's a question that comes up a lot in my life these days. And I'm using the word partnership broadly. The kinds of partners I'm thinking about are marriage partners, business partners, you can include long-term coworkers, partners in church life like fellow church members. The question I'm thinking about can really apply to any relationship where there's a lot of water under the bridge, where a lot of fires have been ignited and put out. Relationships where there are years or even decades of bygones uh, that have to be allowed to be bygones. In those cases, how do you sustain long-term relationships? Anyone can have a best friend at summer camp. It's the next 20 years that make things particularly difficult. How do you sustain long-term partnerships? And this is relevant for me uh, at every turn in my life. Uh, Christy and I are coming up on our 25th wedding anniversary, and there's been lots of richer and poorer, uh, sickness and health, better and worse, failure and sin, uh, forgiveness and restoration. God has helped, uh, helped us. We both say that our marriage is uh, stronger and better than it was 25 years ago, but there's still challenges. And of course, there's now 25 years of historical memory to go with any challenges that come up. We don't even uh, bother each other in new and exciting ways anymore. Or, how, or here at the church, in this, this church context, Many of us have known each other for over a decade. Some of us are moving in well into our second decade of knowing one another. I was uh, counting, going through the church membership roles the other day, and I, was, I counted easily about 24 couples that I've married who are still here. And I could, easily, I could probably double that number if I included couples that other pastors have married. 
many of us have a lot of water under the bridge. We were noticing the other day that the kids that myself and other parents my age used to take to the zoo in the next five years are going to start taking their kids to the zoo. I hope they don't lose any of their children, like we lost a few of them. Uh, they're all accounted for, just so you know. And it's in, the, in the process of all this time together, uh, things change, don't they? Life gets busier. One of the weird things about life is you always feel busier, busy, but the older you get, the, the busier you get. And my friend Ian Valancourt is a seminary and college professor in Canada, and he says one of the main things he has to teach his college students is to realize how busy they aren't. We always feel busy, but over time we get busy, busier. Less capacity to make friends than we had when we were in our 20s. Less capacity to make friends than when we were in our 30s. Maybe less capacity to make friends than when we were in our 40s, and I could go on. And not only do things keep changing in terms of uh, busyness, but along the way, we the members of Emmanuel Baptist Church have sinned against each other, uh, forgiven one another, reconciled with one another, sometimes thoroughly, other times not so thoroughly. So there's easily aggravatable offenses in the water, in the relationships. And there's just lots of dynamics. In the course of church life, people get really close, and then they get distant, and then they get close again, and then they get distant, and will they get close again? It's not clear. Some gospel community groups split and multiply. That brings changes. Some people live right next door to you, and so it's easy to hang out all the time, and then they move to the other end of town, and you barely see them again. Sometimes folks go to another church. Sometimes they go to another town. Kids keep growing and changing. Families uh, move. And sometimes the challenges we face in body life are that things don't change. Singleness remains the same. Infertility remains the same. Widowhood remains the same. And that has its own challenges and sorrows. And in the midst of sin and change and water under the bridge and an ever-diminishing um, energy level to deal with it all. That's what I find. It's not only are there more challenges, I have less and less in the tank year over year to deal with all that's coming my way. I start thinking to myself, how do you, how do you maintain long-term long partnerships in church membership, church ministry? How do you keep loving each other long enough so that you can pass it on to your kids and see them loving one another as well? Are you feeling anything I'm feeling? You, you hear what I'm saying? I'm going to trust that's a knowing silence. Let me come at this from another angle. How do we sustain long-term partnerships with apostolic missionaries? Missionaries we've sent out. How do we love all the people here, right in front of us, 
and love all the people who are overseas. Easier to forget. Not in front of us. If you're older in life, you have to ask, how do I grow old and care for my grandbabies and nurse my own body and take care of missionaries whose babies are sick overseas? If you're middle-aged, you have to ask, how on earth do I raise kids and try to help them glow close with friends and then rejoice when those friends get called to be a part of a church plant in another city? How do you sustain that kind of long-term love and partnership? Or turn it around. What if you're one of those missionaries? How do you get sent out as an apostolic missionary, learn a language, learn how to drive on a different side of the road, and walk through a culture every day where every time you open your mouth, you sound like you're three years old? How do you raise your kids? and balance a checkbook, and struggle with singleness in some cases, and answer that email from your sending church asking how you're doing. And not just write back, Psalm 88. How do you sustain that partnership? Or let me flip that one more time. How do you come home from the mission field? Your finances are in a tight spot, your health is in tatters, your life's work, Looks like it might come unraveled in the rearview mirror of your life. How do you re-enter and love a people who've changed, who sin against you, who don't fully understand you? How do you sustain those kinds of long-term relationships? I think about this stuff all the time these days. And I know that you do too because it comes up in conversations. As we think about, uh, it's, not, it's not a Bible verse, but it is a great line. John Cougar Mellencamp. Oh yeah, life goes on long after the thrill of living is gone. I won't, I'll spare you the let it rock, let it roll apart. But there's something about something being new and exciting and all a bunch of young people with idealistic ideas of how to build the church. And then how do you sustain that into your 40s and 50s when you realize, you know, there's really nothing very special about me, but there are convictions I'd like to hold on to, friendships I'd like to keep. How do you sustain those kinds of partnerships? And I think about partnerships and relationships uh, more than I think about numbers. I'm not worried about Emmanuel's numbers. Lots of people are members here, and I'm thankful for our financial numbers too. Lots of people are giving here. But I don't just want to sustain, I don't just want to preach to bodies. I want to pastor people who can sustain long-term relationships with each other, with those we've sent out, and with the Lord. And that's a lot of work. And it takes a lot of wisdom. And it takes a lot of God's Holy Spirit. That's what I think about a lot. And I think Philippians has a lot to teach us. I think Philippians has a lot to teach us on this topic. And if if, if you're a younger member at Emmanuel, or you're newer to to Emmanuel, you're like, I really don't relate to what he's saying. Stick around. You will. So just stock this one, store it away for a special day. 
The book of Philippians is a little gem in the New Testament. It's beautiful. Jeff, Pastor Jeff preached on it years ago for us, but I'm assuming only a few of you remember those days. It was written from Paul in prison to a church he planned, he planted in his apostolic labors. Uh, when the book is summarized, it's usually described as a book about joy. And it is a book about joy. If Philippians was a pop song, the chorus would be rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Paul just keeps telling these people from a jail cell that they should rejoice. But it's a little bit boxing to call Philippians just a book about joy. Uh, it also has so much to teach us about humility. Philippians chapter 2 has that very famous passage about the humility of Christ. He humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Paul is trying to teach this church about humility. Philippians is a lot teaches about unity. And actually the reason humility and unity come up in Philippians is because they're tightly related. It's very hard to stay united with a proud person. Much easier to stay united with a bunch of people who are deeply humble. But one of the overlooked topics in the book of Philippians, one that I think is very important, one that I want to look at this morning with you, is partnership. The book of Philippians is a book about partnership. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul is praying and recognizing the partnership he had in the gospel with this local church. In Philippians chapter 4, and we'll look at this passage again, he talks about the partnership that he had in, with this local church. And this partnership idea was actually something fairly formal. It was really, in a sense, like a binding contract between Paul and the Philippians that they would care for each other, that he would be an apostle to them, and they would be a supporting, loving, financially providing congregation to him. And we're going to see when we get to chapter 4 that they had done this for a while. And the Philippians had been faithful through thick and thin. So as we look at Philippians and we look at partnership, here's what I want us to see. I want us to see the secret to sustaining our long-term relationships. I want, to see, I want us to see the secret to us loving each other, not next week, but over the decades. I, I would love to marry the children's children of so many of the people I've had the privilege of marrying. I would love to hold in my arms the children's children of the people who I've had the privilege of walking with in this life. I, I would love it if the Lord left me here till the day I die. And I'd love for so many of you to be here as well. But it, it's not easy. It doesn't just happen. And I think Philippians has got the secret to, and I'm using the word secret on, on purpose. I normally avoid that word. Beware normally of any preacher who's got the secret. But Paul calls it the secret here, and so I'll use it. I want us to think about the secret to that kind of long-term relationship. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you that secret last, and first I'm going to give you two observations from the book of Philippians. So here's the outline. The first observation I'm going to make from the book of Philippians is it's possible to care about your local church 
and the advance of God's global mission at the same time. That's a mouthful, but it's important. It's possible, even expected, uh, even modeled for us in the book of Philippians that you can care about your local church and all of its many demands and be focused on the borders of where the gospel haven't gone and where God's taking it at the same time. It's first observation we'll make. The second is we'll just look at what the partnership between Paul and the church looked like. What does it look like for a church to partner with an apostle? Or as we would apply it in modern ways, what would it look like for the church to partner with a missionary, or if you will, an apostolic missionary that's sent out from their midst? And third, we'll get to the secret. Here it is. I'll tell it to you in advance. Partnerships, long-term partnerships, are only possible to sustain when both partners don't ultimately need each other because they have everything they need in Christ. But we'll get there. Here's the first point. It's possible to care about your local church and the global advance of the gospel at the same time. You could walk and chew gum at the same time. You can do two things at once. When I was a new pastor, I remember always hearing people ask, is that church a pastoral church or a missionary church? Is that church inward focused or outward focused? And I always hated the question. Because it seemed like it made a dichotomy and a division where there ought not to be a division. Because you see, the churches that Paul was planting in the New Testament were churches that were deeply concerned about things we might call pastoral, people's growth and grace, their care, their nurture, and what we might call missional, taking the gospel where it has not gone before, whether it's to a campus or to a city or to the ends of the earth. Here in the book of Philippians, we see how the Apostle Paul expected the Philippians to care about both. Listen to Philippians 1, 9 through 11. I'm going to read a lot of Philippians this morning, so it'll appear on the screen behind me, um, and we'll move through it pretty quickly. First of all, notice he prays for them. Just normal level pastoral care. He prays for them. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He prayed for them, for their knowledge, discernment, purity, blamelessness, basic stuff, garden variety holiness, Paul's praying for. In chapter 2, he exhorts them to be united and humble, to have a united congregation, not, not a congregation that's divided into a million factions where people get together and eat roast pastor for lunch or, or divide along different sectarian issues, but one that's united. And so we read in Philippians 2, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That should always be our goal. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3 tells us to watch out for false teachers. 
Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And by mutilate the flesh, he means those who are imposing circumcision as a requirement on the churches. And then uh, in Philippians chapter 4, he does what every good pastor does. He tries to get fighting Christians to get along. And he names them by name. Man, you don't want this letter sent to your doorstep. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. These weren't the carnal ladies in the church. These were people who had labored beside Paul. But good, godly Christians can get themselves into some terrible situations, and these two ladies could not seem to get along. So he tells them to reconcile. Praying, pursuing unity, watching out for false teaching, making peace. That's just basic congregational life 101. That's garden variety sanctification. And in the same letter, the same letter, Paul says, now think about me and my mission work. Think about me and my mission work. Don't you not miss, don't miss out on what I'm doing. Don't become like an ingrown toenail. Notice what I'm doing for the advance of the gospel. Back to chapter one. I want you to know brothers. This is verse 12. I want you to know this. This isn't something you can neglect. I want you to know this. I want you to know, brothers, what, that what has happened to me has, been, has really served to advance the gospel. Now what has happened to him is he's been thrown in jail. He's been arrested. We're not sure if he was under home incarceration or in a, in a Roman jail cell, but he's incarcerated. And he tells us that it's really happened to advance the gospel so that, verse 13, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Just like Paul, go tell it on the mountain meant go tell the imperial guard who's got you chained. And he's telling the gospel and sharing the gospel with the one who's imprisoning him. And he wants the Philippians to think about it. He wants them to know about it. And he says, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Well, I won't keep reading, but you, you get the point. Paul's kind of nudging him and going, hey, a lot of people have gotten bolder since I got in jail. Since I've been sharing the gospel in jail, a lot of people have decided they could share the gospel too. And so his own mission's work is meant to spur on their evangelistic work. Paul did not consider pastoral concerns and missions updates to be out of place in a letter dealing with their ordinary local church's growth in grace. And I won't even mention, because I'm going to get there in other points in the sermon, that in chapter 2, he mentions how he's going to send them Timothy, and they've sent him Epaphroditus, and then how he's in jail comes up again in chapter 4, and he's thankful for the way they've cared for him. In other words, throughout the book of Philippians, Paul is saying, here's how you grow in grace, ordinary congregation, and he's saying, here's what's going on in the front lines of the mission field, congregation, and he expects the congregation to love both. That's not actually true. He knows they love both. See, the whole letter, and we'll see this in a second, 
happens because they've sent a man named Epaphroditus to be with him and because Epaphroditus has told them that the Philippians still care about him and are interested in the work that he is doing. Now, I know for busy people like us, this can feel impossible. Many times in life, you can barely keep the bathrooms clean, the kids fed, the bills paid. But Paul shows us that caring for normal level sanctification in the ends of the earth can happen in one Christian life. And actually, what's amazing is it's actually liberating. It's liberating. What we tend to do, believers, beloved, is we look at the culture around us that's so self-absorbed and we think, man, that's so ridiculous. People actually think they are whatever they feel. That's crazy. But as long as our self-absorption has a Christian veneer, we don't notice it. Hey, I'm caring about my family. Well, good, but you know what? Jesus says caring for your family is something Gentiles do. It's good. No one should stop caring for their family and care for them in distinctly Christian ways. But it's not the height of what Christ calls us to. We're to be, cons- we're to be liberated from the bondage to self and just thinking about what's going on in my immediate life and being brought into the fact that God is in the process of advancing his kingdom to the ends of the earth. I am not just to focus on my little life, though I am to focus there, but I'm to realize that my little life is part of a greater story where Jesus is bringing a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And you know, it kind of, it actually enthuses the mundane, doesn't it? Because all of us at the end of the day, even missionaries who go overseas, do a lot of boring things every day. David Wells once said, have you had any ultimate moments lately? There's very few ultimate moments in life. But in the midst of all of those little moments in our locality, we have the awareness, the awareness that we're part of something bigger. We're bringing in the very kingdom of God that's spreading not just in this local congregation, but is also spreading at the ends of the earth wherever God sends his messengers to preach the gospel. That's a blessing to be liberated from the tyranny of your own little world and to be brought into the grandeur of what God is doing throughout the world. This brings me to my second observation. What did Paul and the Philippians' partnership look like? What did it look like? He calls them partners. What did that mean? What did it mean that they were partners? Well, it meant that they both served one another. And they served one another very practically. We already read how Paul prayed for them. Can, can you, did you read that? He said, I had the affection of Christ for you. So Paul, Paul's whole heart is invested in this people. But what we might miss is that they prayed for him. Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So here's the thing. Paul thinks that he's going to get out of jail. 
But if he doesn't get out of jail, he knows he's going to make Jesus look good in his life or his death. How does he know that? Anyone notice? It was because the Philippians were praying for him. He ties his own faithfulness unto death to the prayers of a local congregation that's praying for him. He ties his own release from jail, from knowing that he's not a forgotten apostle, but there's a congregation praying for him. I got an email last night about midnight from two of our missionaries in Indonesia who wanted to settle their life on the island of Sumatra and serve the Lord there. But their kids just responded very poorly to the, the climate there. And they, they were really, their health was imperiled. And so they've had to move. And now they're in a place where they have no idea where they're going to serve God. But they're emailing me at midnight because they heard the sermon last week. And they know they're being thought of by you. They know that they're being prayed for and cared for by you. This stuff makes a real difference. On top of that, and I, I think for this, well, I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it. Maybe I'll get in trouble with time later. But uh, on top of that, there was this sort of sending war of love, the sending war between the Philippians of, and Paul. They, they would send him different messengers to encourage him. He would send them messengers to encourage them. They're so concerned about each other that they keep sending different preachers back and forth to encourage each other. I'll read to you from verse 19 of uh, chapter 2. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul would partner with them by sending a faithful teacher and by gathering from that teacher a faithful report. And then Paul hoped to swing through Philippi again to encourage them himself. Now think about that. You're in jail and you know one truly faithful guy. And your main thing you're thinking about this guy is, I think I'll send him to those Philippians to encourage them. Do you sense anything of the Spirit of Christ in all that? Then Paul goes on. I have thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger, or apostolos, and minister to my need. In other words, you sent me, Epaphroditus, as an apostolos, and now I'm going to send him back to you because of this. For he's been longing for you and for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. One more verse. What are we looking at? We're just looking at the partnership. They're praying for each other. They're sending messengers back and forth to know each other. They're doing this on top of washing the dishes and raising kids and two women in the church fighting. It's all happening at the same time. And then uh, Paul receives their gift because back in those days, uh, the government didn't pay for you when you were in jail. 
Now, this may shape some of your political opinions, but uh, back in those days, you paid for your own time in jail. So the money that the Philippians are sending to Paul, Paul is then using to feed himself while he's incarcerated by the Romans. And he says in Philippians 4.18, I have received full payment and more. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, they sent him, Epaphroditus, the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Beloved, if you're new to Emmanuel, you need to know we've tried to model ourselves off of this for decades now. We've tried to pray regularly for our missionaries. The Emmanuel Christmas offering this year, which is aiming to give money to our missionaries and a special gift, is another model of this kind of care. Thankfully, their gift won't meet any missionaries in jail this year, but our prayers are serving a missionary in jail, as we know, or a missionary that's incarcerated. We've sought to pray like Paul. We've sought to give like Paul. We've sought to send those who could care for our missionaries and receive them back. If you're feeling like, I'm a little disconnected from all that, let me encourage you, most of that, those updates happen in our prayer rooms on Sunday morning. That's where we read reports from those missionaries. It's where we pray for those missionaries. It's often where the fire is kindled in our hearts to give to those missionaries. And all of that is simply trying to reflect the New Testament life of the church, which wasn't just focused on the local congregation, but was focused on local congregations who cared about the world because Jesus cares about the world. Now, we come to the secret of long-term partnerships. And I'll close here. We come to the secret of long-term partnerships, and it applies to Paul and the Philippians, it applies to long-term members of Emmanuel. It applies to anything caused to marriage. It applies to anything beyond summer camp or puppy love, which are easy to make work for a weekend. Partnerships are only possible to sustain when both partners don't ultimately need one another because they have everything they need in Christ. Look at this verse in Philippians chapter 4. Notice it. It's, it's the weirdest thank you note you ever read. Philippians is the weirdest thank you note you ever read. And by weird, I mean Christian. It's the most Christian thank you note you'll ever read. So Paul starts off by saying, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So he's just gotten this gift from Epaphroditus. He's just gotten the money he needs to care for himself. He's just received a brother in the Lord and a gift from the Philippian church. And he says, I'm rejoicing that you revived your concern for me. Now, now, I don't want you to think you didn't care about me. I know you cared about me, but for whatever reason, they didn't have an opportunity. They didn't have an opportunity to be able to care for them right away. So he had to wait in jail, probably hungry and thirsty, waiting for their care to come. But he, know, he knows they cared the whole time, but they just weren't able to get the care there as quickly as might have been desirable. And so here's Paul rejoicing and assuring them that he knows they all would cared, 
but they didn't have time. Now, sometimes in the life of a congregation, there are people who care about you who don't have time, but that's another story. That happens in the course of our lives together. Now, then he says the most curious thing. Verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. You're in jail. You just got a care package from a guy named Epaphroditus, and the first thing you want to tell people is, no, I didn't, I didn't need that. I want to be very clear. I did not need that. Now, he cannot mean he didn't physically need that because he goes on to say this, not that I'm speaking of need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of placing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So he has had physical need and he has had hunger, but he wants you to know he didn't need anything. Now think about that. How many elders were preaching the gospel to Paul on a weekly basis while he was in jail? Zero. How many deacons brought him money on a weekly basis while he's in jail? Zero. How much food did he have? Little to nothing. How much abundance did he have? He had, he had need. He had hunger. He was low. And the thing he wants these Philippians to know is, I just want you to know, I, I didn't need the gift. I didn't need it. So, some commentators read this and think, this is the most ungrateful guy you ever read. It's not ungrateful, it's Christian. You see, what was happening is that while Paul had physical needs, while he had financial needs, while he had fellowship needs, and while the Philippians couldn't do anything about it for a season, he had Christ. He had Christ. And he says the secret to dealing with this life in a cell, for me, for not stewing with bitterness and jealousy, for not dying with loneliness, the secret for me is that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And when he said that, he didn't mean he was on the edge of winning an NBA championship. When Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, he means whatever God calls me to do, wherever God calls me to obey, wherever God calls me to rejoice, I can do it. Because even if my belly is empty and my fellowship tank is empty and my financial uh, provisions are empty, wherever it is, I have Christ. Now think about this. Paul is not, but let me be careful. Paul is not being a stoic who's ungrateful. He, he's, when he says, not that I had any need, he's not, he's not being like a stoic who's not ungrateful because then he goes on in verse 14 and says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. That was kind. But, but he wants them to know that his acknowledgement of their kindness is not because he was like a desperate person in jail without any joy. And so then he goes on and he tells them why he rejoices in their gift. And this is wild. He doesn't say I rejoice in your gift because I'm going to eat tonight. He doesn't say I rejoice in your gift because being with Epaphroditus was the sweetest thing. He says he rejoices in their gift because it's going to get them more treasures in heaven 
He's more concerned about them even when he's getting from them. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The main thing he loves about their gift is that God's enjoying their gift. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, do you have, do I have that kind of joy in Christ? The kind that satisfies you and empowers you so much that even in a jail cell or a season without community or a time when others are busy and lack the opportunity to care for you, you still have joy in Jesus. That's what we need, brothers and sisters. That's what sustains long-term relationships. The psalm says, there is a river that makes glad the city of God. That is inside God's city, although there's wars raging all around, there's a river, there's a source of water for us, even when we would starve. And that river is Christ, how he's a friend to us. How when your conscience smites you, he's forgiveness for us. How when you're alone, he's present with us. How when you're weak, he's strong in us. All of these things are what the Christian draws on. We're, we're married to Christ. We're, we're brothers and sisters to Christ. We, we are in Christ. He is our very life. We are men and women in Christ. And it's wonderful when we get the perfect GCG and Christians who live near us and preachers that actually preach the gospel. It's all wonderful. But it's all meant to point you to the source. And when you know the source, you can draw on him even when the human supply is cut off. You see, here's Paul's experience. Let me just make this as plain as I can. Paul's in jail. And he tells us, while he's in jail, that there's only one church that actually cares about him. He says this in verse 15. No church entered into partnership with me in giving, receiving, except you only. Think about this. This is the guy who planted the New Testament churches. How many of them supported him? One. And that one couldn't always get the stuff to him in time. How many men did Paul meet that he could trust with everything? One. And he would send that guy away. In other words, what made Paul possible was Christ. Was the living Christ knowing him, leaning on him, drawing from him, being a friend to him, being forgiven by him. He's the vine and, and Paul's the branch and Paul's taking life from Christ even in a jail cell. When that's your reality, then when you're surrounded by people who remind you of Christ, you're thrilled. 
And when you're in a season of life where you can't seem to ever get to be around people who love Christ, you can still draw near to Christ. I don't mean to say anything that would cause us to despise the ordinary means of grace. Don't take from the sermon, oh, I don't need preaching, I don't need friends, I don't need a, any kind of time with Christians. No, normatively, that is what encourages us and strengthens us. That's what we should be laboring to be for one another. But I promise you, there could be 5,000 people in this church and you will go through lonely times. If you raise kids, they won't always have friends, even if we do the youth group perfect. Sometimes your kids will be the reason they don't have any friends. And sometimes it will be other people's kids that are reason you don't have any, uh, those kids don't have friends. And there's no degree of pastoring that can make your life perfect. What we can have is Christ. When we abound and when we're abased, when we have plenty and when we have lack, we can always have Christ. Two more words and I'm gonna sit down. First, a word to our missionaries. I hope we can raise money this season to give you a wonderful gift. I hope, if you're watching this online, that Emmanuel pours out all kinds of money to give our missionaries lavish supply. But if our gift turns out to be small or we forget to pray one month or no one responds to your text, we may have failed. We may just not be able to respond right now, but we are not the secret to your contentment. Christ is. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And then a word to all of us. Emmanuel, those of you who've been here a year, five years, 10 years, 20 years, those of you who look at me and go, he, he is looking older. <laughs> I feel the same way. I'm not trying to discourage loving one another, racing out to care for one another, hugging one another. I'm trying to acknowledge a mystery, an irony. The irony of all I'm saying is this. The more we live on Christ, independent of other people in all circumstances, and the less we ultimately need the help of other people for our ultimate joy, the more we actually become a blessing to each other. The more we actually have gas in the tank to care for each other, even when we're not getting all we would want from one another. And that is the secret to sustaining long-term memberships and partnerships. And that is the secret to taking what God has given us and passing it on to our children so that we see it even growing in the coming generation. Merry Christmas, Emmanuel. We've been given everything in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and praise you for your mercy and your grace. And I just pray that we would learn together to learn how to live off Christ alone as our everything. And we pray that you would nurture and strengthen our faith so that as we dwell on you and take life from you, we also become a mighty blessing to others.
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.